Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen, Volume 1, Chapter 9. So, previously on Northanger Abbey, we've met Catherine Moreland, who is 17 years old, very naive, lives in the middle of nowhere, and is invited by Mr. and Mrs. Allen to go with them on their vacation to Bath. In Bath, she gets a bunch of new clothes, they wander around, don't know anybody, it's very sad. They're introduced to Mr. Tilney, and they dance and flirt, and she gets a little bit of a crush. It's very exciting. But then Mr. Tilney seems to disappear off the face of the earth. She cannot find him anywhere. And instead they meet Mrs. Thorpe and her three daughters, the oldest of whom is Isabella. And Isabella becomes instant besties with Catherine. They're still wandering around Bath. They still can't find Mr. Tilney. It seems like he might have just left Bath, which makes her kind of sad. But at the same time, she's having fun with her friend. Mrs. Allen and Mrs. Thorpe are very good friends who talk at each other, but not with each other. And Isabel and Catherine have similar things, although they're doing a little bit better. They also have a love of gothic novels, including those by Anne Radcliffe and the Mysteries of Udolpho. Then the brothers come into town. So James Moreland, Catherine's brother, comes with Mr. Thorpe. Mr. John Thorpe, who is Isabella's brother, and they come into town. You quickly realize that Mr. Thorpe is the absolute worst. He is grossly talking about every woman he passes by and saying whether they're pretty or not. It's a lot. And you also quickly realize that James likes Isabella, and Isabella probably likes James back, but Catherine doesn't really notice any of that, and Mr. T Mr. Thorpe asks her to dance. And then we go to the next ball, and Mr. Tilney is back! Yay! Very exciting. She gets to see him very, very briefly. And then has to dance with Thorpe, and he again shows that he is the worst. And after that not-so-pleasant ball, where she spent way too much time with Mr. Thorpe and didn't get to spend time with Mr. Tilney, we are... We head back to Bath with Catherine. progress of Catherine's unhappiness from the events of the evening was as follows. It appeared first in a general dissatisfaction with everybody about her while she remained in the rooms, which speedily brought on considerable weariness and a violent desire to go home. This, on arriving in Pulteney Street, took the direction of extraordinary hunger, and when that was appeased, changed into an earnest longing to be in bed. Such was the extreme point of her distress, for when there she immediately fell into a sound sleep which lasted nine hours, and from which she awoke perfectly revived, in excellent spirits, with fresh hopes and fresh schemes. The first wish of her heart was to improve her acquaintance with Miss Tilney, and almost her first resolution to seek her for that purpose. In the pump room at noon, in the pump room, one so newly arrived in Bath must be met with, and that building she had already found so favourable for the discovery of female excellence and the completion of female intimacy, so admirably adapted for secret discourse and unlimited confidence, that she was most reasonably encouraged to expect another friend from within its walls. Her plan for the morning thus settled, she sat quietly down to her book after breakfast, resolving to remain in the same place and the same employment till the clock struck one. 
and from habitude very little incommoded by the remarks and ejaculations of mrs allen whose vacancy of mind and incapacity for thinking were such that she never talked a great deal so she could never be entirely silent and therefore while she sat at her work if she lost her needle or broke her thread if she heard a carriage in the street or saw a speck upon her gown she must observe it aloud whether there were any one at leisure to answer her or not at about half-past twelve a remarkably loud rap drew her in haste to the window and scarcely had she time to inform catherine of there being two open carriages at the door in the first only a servant her brother driving miss thorpe in the second before john thorpe came running upstairs calling out well miss morland here i am have you been waiting long we could not come before the old devil of a coachmaker was such an eternity finding a thing out fit well miss morland here i am have you been waiting long we could not come before the old devil of a coachmaker was such an eternity finding out a thing fit to be got into and now it is ten thousand to one but they break down before we are out of the street how do you do mrs allen a famous ball last night was it not come miss morland be quick for the others are in a confounded hurry to be off they want to get their tumble over what do you mean said catherine where are you all going to going to why you have not forgot our engagement did not we agree together to take the drive this morning what a head you have we are going up to claverton down something was said about it i remember said catherine looking at mrs allen for her opinion but really i did not expect you not expect me that's a good one what a dust you would have made if i had not come catherine's silent appeal to her friend meanwhile was entirely thrown away for Mrs. Allen, not at all being in the habit of conveying any expression herself by a look, was not aware of its being ever intended by anybody else. And Catherine, whose desire of seeing Miss Tilney again could at the moment bear a short delay in favour of a drive, and who thought there could be no impropriety in her going with Mr. Thorpe, as Isabella was going at the same time with James, was therefore obliged to speak plainer. "'Well, ma'am, what do you say to it? Can you spare me for an hour or two? Shall I go?' "'Do just as you please, my dear,' replied Mrs. Allen, with the most placid indifference. Catherine took the advice, and ran off to get ready. In a very few minutes she reappeared, having scarcely allowed the two others time enough to get through a few short sentences in her praise. After Thorpe had procured Mrs. Allen admiration of his gig, and then receiving her friend's parting good wishes, they both hurried down the stairs. "'My dearest creature!' cried Isabella, to whom the duty of friendship immediately called her before she could get into the carriage. "'You have been at least three hours getting ready. I was afraid you were ill. What a delightful ball we had last night. I have a thousand things to say to you, but make haste and get in, for I long to be off.' Catherine followed her orders and turned away, but not too soon to hear her friend exclaim aloud to James, "'What a sweet girl she is! I quite dote on her!' "'You will not be frightened, Miss Morland,' said Thorpe as he handed her in, if my horse should dance about a little at first, settling off. He will most likely give a plunge or two, and perhaps take the rest for a minute. But he will soon know his master. He is full of spirits, playful as can be, but there is no vice in him. Catherine did not think the portrayal a very inviting one, but it was too late to retreat, and she was too young to own herself frightened, so, resigning herself to her fate, and trusting to the animal's boasted knowledge of its owner, she sat peaceably down and saw Thorpe sit down by her. Everything being then arranged, the servant who stood at the horse's head was bid in an important voice to let him go, 
and off they went in the quietest manner imaginable, without a plunge or a caper, or anything like one. Catherine, delighted at so happy an escape, spoke her pleasure aloud with grateful surprise, and her companion immediately made the matter perfectly simple by assuring her that it was entirely owing to the peculiar erit... And her companion immediately made the matter perfectly simple by assuring her that it was entirely owing to the peculiarly judicious manner in which he had then held the reins, and the singular discernment and dexterity with which he had directed his whip. Catherine, though she could not help wondering that with such perfect command of his horse he should think it necessary to alarm her with a relation of his tricks, congratulated herself sincerely on being under the care of a so excellent coachman and perceiving that the animal continued to go on in the same quiet manner, without showing the smallest propensity toward any unpleasant vivacity, and considering its inevitable pace was ten miles an hour, by no means alarmingly fast, gave herself up to all the enjoyment of air and exercise of the most invigorating kind, in a fine mild day of February, with the consciousness of safety, a silence of several minutes succeeded their first short dialogue, it was broken by Thorpe saying very abruptly, "'Old Allen is as rich as a Jew, is he not?' Catherine did not understand him, and he repeated his question, adding an explanation. "'Old Allen, the man you were with?' "'Oh, Mr. Allen, you mean. Yes, I, I believe he is very rich.' "'And no children at all?' "'No, not any.' "'A famous thing for his next heirs. He is your godfather, is he not?' "'My godfather? No.' "'But you are always very much with them.' "'Yes, very much.' "'Aye, that is what I meant. "'He seems a good kind of old fellow enough, "'and has lived very well in his time, I dare say. "'He is not gouty for nothing. "'Does he drink his bottle a day now?' "'His bottle a day? No. "'Why should you think of such a thing? "'He's a very temperate man, "'and you could not fancy him in liquor last night. "'Lord help you. "'You women are always thinking of men's being in liquor.' Why, you do not suppose a man is overset by a bottle? I am sure of this, that if everybody was to drink their bottle a day, there would not be half the disorders in the world there are now. It would be a famous good thing for us all. I cannot believe it. Oh, Lord, it would be the saving of thousands. There is not the hundredth part of the wine consumed in this kingdom that there ought to be. Our foggy climate wants help. And yet I have heard that there is a great deal of wine drank in Oxford. Oxford? There is no drinking at Oxford now, I assure you. Nobody drinks there. You would hardly meet with a man who goes beyond his four pints at the utmost. Now, for instance, it was reckoned a remarkable thing at the last party in my rooms that upon an average we cleared about five pints ahead. It was looked upon as something out of the common way. Mine is famous good stuff, to be sure. You would not often meet with anything like it in Oxford, and that may account for it. But this will just give you a notion of the general rate of drinking there. "'Yes, it does give me a notion,' said Catherine warmly, "'and that is that you all drink a great deal more wine than I thought you did. "'However, I'm sure dreams does not drink too so much.' "'This declaration brought on a loud and overpowering reply, "'of which no part was very distinct, "'except the frequent exclamations amounting almost to oaths which adorned it, "'and Catherine was left when it ended, "'with rather a strengthened belief of there being a great deal of wine drank in Oxford,' and the same happy conviction of her brother's comparative sobriety. Thorpe's ideas then all reverted to the merits of his own equipage, 
and she was called on to admire the spirit and freedom with which his horse moved along, and the ease which his paces, as well as the excellent of the springs, gave the motion of the carriage. She followed him in all his admiration as well as she could. To go before or beyond him was impossible. His knowledge and her ignorance of the subject, his rapidity of expression and her diffidence of herself, put that out of her power. She could strike out on nothing new in commendation, but she readily echoed whatever he chose to assert, and it was finally settled between them without any difficulty that his equipage was altogether the most complete of its kind in England, his carriage the neatest, his horse the best goer, and himself the best coachman. "'You do not really think, Mr. Thorpe,' said Catherine, venturing after some time to consider the matter as entirely decided, and to offer some little variation on the subject, that James's gig will break down.' "'Break down, oh, Lord! Did you ever see such a little titty-tuppy thing in your life?' "'There is not a sound piece of iron about it.' "'Break down, oh, Lord! Did you ever see such a little tit-tuppy thing in your life? There is not a sound piece of iron about it. The wheels have been fairly worn out these ten years at least. And as for the body, upon my soul, you might shake it to pieces yourself with a touch. It is the most devilish little rickety business I ever beheld. Thank God we've a better. I would not be bound to go two miles in it for fifty thousand pounds.' "'Good heavens!' cried Catherine, quite frightened. "'Then pray let us turn back. "'They will certainly meet with an accident if we go on. "'Do let us turn back, Mr. Thorpe. "'Stop and speak to my brother, and tell him how very unsafe it is.' "'Unsafe! Oh, Lord! What is there in that? "'They will only get a roll if it does break down, "'and there is plenty of dirt. "'It will be excellent falling. "'Oh, curse it! The carriage is safe enough. "'If a man knows how to drive it, a thing like of that sort in good hands "'will last above twenty years after it is fairly worn out.' "'Lord bless you! I would undertake for five pounds to drive it to York and back again, without losing a nail.' Catherine listened with astonishment. She knew not how to reconcile two such very different accounts of the same thing, for she had not been brought up to understand the propensities of a rattle, not to know how many idle assertions and impudent falsehoods the excessive vanity will lead. Her own family were plain matter-of-fact people, who seldom aimed at wit of any kind, her father, at the utmost, being contented with a pun, and her mother with a proverb. They were not in the habit, therefore, of telling lies to increase their importance, or of asserting at one moment that what they would contradict the next. She reflected on the affair for some time in much perplexity, and was more than once on the point of requesting from Mr. Thorpe a clearer insight into his real opinion on the subject, but she checked herself, because it appeared to her that he did not excel in giving those clearer insights in making those things plain which he had before made ambiguous, and, joining to this the consideration that he would not really suffer his sister and his friend to be exposed to a danger from which he might easily preserve them, she concluded at last that he must know the carriage to be in fact perfectly safe, and therefore would alarm herself no longer. By him the whole matter seemed entirely forgotten, and all the rest of his conversation, or rather talk, began and ended with himself and his own concerns. He told her of horses which he had bought for a trifle and sold for incredible sums, of racing matches, in which his judgment had infallibly foretold the winter, the winner, of shooting parties in which he had killed more birds, though without having one good shot, than all his companions together, and described to her some famous day's sport with the foxhounds in which his foresight and skills in directing the dogs had prepared mistakes of the most 
experienced huntsman, and in which the boldness of his riding, though it had never endangered his own life for a moment, had been constantly leading others into difficulties, which he calmly concluded had broken the necks of many. Little as Catherine was in the habit of judging for herself, and unfixed as were her general notions of what men ought to be, she could not entirely repress a doubt, while she bore with the effusions of his endless conceit, of being altogether completely agreeable. It was a bold surmise, for he was Isabella's brother, and she had been assured by James that his manners would recommend him to all of her sex. But in spite of this, the extreme weariness of his company, which crept over her before they had been out an hour, and which continued unceasingly to increase till they stopped in Pulteney Street again, induced her, in some small degree, to resist such high authority and to distrust his powers of giving universal pleasure. When they arrived at Mrs. Allen's door, the astonishment of Isabella was hardly to be expressed, on finding it was too late in the day for them to attend her friend into the house. Past three o'clock! It was inconceivable, incredible, impossible! And she would neither believe her own watch, nor her brother's, nor the servant's. She would believe no assurance of it, founded on reason or reality, till Morland produced his watch, and ascertained the fact, to have doubted a moment longer then, would have been equally inconceivable, incredible, and impossible. And she could only protest over and over again that no two hours and a half had ever gone off so swiftly before, as Catherine was called on to confirm. Catherine could not tell a falsehood, even to please Isabella, but the latter was spared the misery of her friend's dissenting voice by not waiting for her answer. Her own feelings entirely engrossed her. Her wretchedness was most acute on finding herself obliged to go directly home. It was ages since she had had a moment's conversation with her dearest Catherine, and though she had such thousands of things to say to her, it appeared as if they were never to be alone together again. So, with smiles of most exquisite misery and the laughing eye of utter despondency, she bade her friend adieu and went on. Catherine found Mrs. Allen just returned from all the busy idleness of the morning, and was immediately greeted with, "'Well, my dear, here you are,' a truth which she had no greater inclination than power to dispute. "'I hope you have had a pleasant airing.' "'Yes, ma'am, I thank you. We could not have had a nicer day.' So Mrs. Thorpe said, "'She was vastly pleased that you're all going.' "'You have seen Mrs. Thorpe, then?' "'Yes, I went to the pump-room as soon as you were gone.' And there I met her, and we had a great deal of talk together. She says there is hardly any veal to be got in the market this morning. It is so uncommonly scarce. Did you see anybody else of our acquaintance? Yes, we agreed to take a turn in the Crescent, and there we met Mrs. Hughes and Mr. and Miss Tilney walking with her. Did you indeed, and did they speak to you? Yes, we walked along the Crescent together for half an hour. They seemed very agreeable people. Miss Tilney was in a very pretty spotted muslin. And I fancy, by what I can learn, that she always dresses very handsomely. Mrs. Hughes talked to me a great deal about the family. And what did she tell you of them? Oh, a vast deal indeed. She hardly talked of anything else. Did she tell you what part of Gloucestershire they came from? Yes, she did. But I cannot recollect now. But they are very good kind of people and very rich. Mrs. Tilney was a Miss Drummond, and she and Mrs. Hughes were schoolfellows, and Miss Drummond had a very large, fo large fortune, and when she married, her father gave her twenty thousand pounds, and five hundred to buy wedding clothes. Mrs. Hughes saw all the clothes after they came from the warehouse. And are Mr. and Mrs. Tilney in Bath? Yes, I fancy they are, but I'm not quite certain. Upon recollection, however, I have a notion that they are both dead. 
Well, at least the mother is, yes. I am sure Mrs. Tilney is dead, because Mrs. Hughes told me there was a very beautiful set of pearls that Mr. Drummond gave his daughter on her wedding day, and that Miss Tilney has got now, for they were put by for her when her mother died. And is Mr. Tilney, my partner, the only son? I cannot be quite positive about that, my dear. I have some idea he is, but, however, he is a very fine young man, Mrs. Hughes says, and likely to do very well. Catherine inquired no further. She had heard enough to feel that Mrs. Allen had no real intelligence to give, and that she was most particularly unfortunate herself in having missed such a meeting with both brother and sister. Could she have foreseen such a circumstance, nothing should have persuaded her to go out with the others. And, as it was, she could only lament her ill luck, and think over what she had lost, till it was clear to her that the drive had by no means been very pleasant, and that John Thorpe himself was quite disagreeable. And thus we have chapter 9 of Northanger Abbey, which I'm titling, In Which the Thorpes Continue to Get in the Way. Because this entire chapter is just Catherine going out with the Thorpes and missing a chance to meet the Tilneys, who she would rather have met. Again, poor Catherine is being thwarted by the Thorpes. So she is very unhappy about the ball from last night where she had to dance with Mr. Thorpe and didn't get to dance with Mr. Tilney. And Mr. Thorpe was obnoxious and just talking about his horses and, you know, not a very good conversationalist. So she came home, she ate, she slept, she woke up the next morning and she felt a lot better. And I think the language that Jane Austen uses here with um, the extremeness of it so that she had considerable weariness and a violent desire to go home. Then she had extraordinary hunger and that appeased eased changed into an earnest longing to be in bed and extreme point of, she had an extreme point of distress for when there she immediately fell into a sound sleep, which lasted nine hours. Um, I think you know, we're look, talking about these kind of overwrought Gothic novels. I think the heroines often are, so overwrought by whatever horrible thing is happening that they cannot sleep and they're kept awake all night just thinking and tossing and turning. And Catherine is not that sort of heroine, so she had a very not fun ball. She comes home and she's not happy about it, but she's still able to eat well and sleep well. And so she wakes up the next morning feeling pretty well. Pretty good. And so then she goes to read her book while she waits to go to the pump room and she hopes to meet Miss Tilney there. And again, there's some fun language here of the favorable discovery of female excellence and the completion of female intimacy so admirably adapted for secret discourses and unlimited confidence. So that's all talking about her and Isabella, right? So she met Isabella in the pump room and they have become such good friends. So she's hopeful that she can meet Miss Tilney there and have the same sort of thing happen so she can be really good friends with Miss Tilney. And so that's her plan for the morning. So she sits down after breakfast to read her book and wait until it's time for them to go to the pump room. And then we've got a little talk about Mrs. Allen, whose vacancy of mind and incapacity of thinking were such that she never talked a great deal so she could never be entirely silent. That is just such a great burn. <laughs> I really love that. I'm going to read it again. So Mrs. Allen, whose vacancy of mind and incapacity for thinking were such that as she never talked a great deal, so she could never be entirely silent. 
Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm taking to mean, obviously, that Mrs. Allen has... Talks a lot, but doesn't have much to say. So she's talking about inconsequential things. So... You know, she's kind of talking to herself as she's doing her work, which is some sort of needlework sewing, I'm assuming. Um, so she pokes herself with her, she lost her needle or she broke her thread. If somebody comes by on the street, she's like constantly talking, but not saying anything, which is such just a, to me, a vivid picture of this character of Mrs. Allen. And I just love that line. I think it's really funny. And after a while, there's a loud rap at the door, and Mrs. Allen sees that there are two carriages out on the street. And Miss Thorpe and James Moreland are in one of them. The other one just has a servant. And then that is shown. And then John Thorpe comes into the room, crying, Well, Miss Moreland, here I am. Have you been waiting long? And that confuses Catherine, because she is not aware that they had an engagement. Um... Asks where they're all going to. And then he shows his rudeness again because he's like, he says, did not we agree to take a drive this morning? What a head you have. We are going up to Claverton Down. And that line, what a head you have. I mean, I take that to mean he's basically calling her stupid, right? He's saying that she has forgotten something. He's intimate. He's kind of gaslighting her and saying that, no, we had this plan. No, you're stupid. How can you not remember it? And... Catherine is kind of accepting that. Well, yeah, something was said about it, I remember, but really I did not expect you. So there was something when they first met, they talked about, he talked about taking her for a drive, but it's been a little while and they did not set up a specific like day or time to go on that drive. So I'm on Catherine's side here that I was not expecting him and I don't think that he was expected. And I don't think that they had a firm, you know, plan to do this drive so I think it's showing the Thorpe's rudeness that they would just show up like this and expect Catherine to be waiting for them but they do and Catherine does not seem to see it as in that same rude light and I think a little bit is some of this gaslighting where she's kind of like well I suppose I guess we had a plan but I wasn't aware of it or I didn't remember it she's kind of going along with that line and it's kind of sad but I think this is just another showcase of how rude the Thorpes and specifically Mr. Thorpe can be in his, you know, coming and acting like they've got this, you know, plan ready to go when they really do not. And then he says, not expect me. That's a good one. And what a dust you would have made if I had not come, which again is trying is kind of in that gaslighty sort of sense to me saying that, you know, that Catherine's lying when she said she didn't expect him, that she's making things up and that she would have gotten really mad if he hadn't come. So that they did have an engagement to do this drive. And yeah, it's just trying to kind of force that idea on her. I, I don't like it. Catherine's silent appeal. So then Catherine talks to Mrs. Allen and there's another great Mrs. Allen burn here saying, Mrs. Allen, not being at all in the habit of conveying any expression herself by a look, was not aware of its being ever intended by anybody else. Oh, Mrs. Allen, just completely oblivious. So Catherine is like looking at Mrs. Allen for approval and Mrs. Allen is completely missing the look. So Catherine has to actually ask her out loud, be more specific and say, hey, can I go with them? 
on their drive and Mrs. Allen says, just as you please, dear. And we go through kind of Catherine's thought process on this, that, you know, at the beginning of the chapter, Catherine was quite determined to wait all morning and then go to the pump room in hopes of seeing Miss Tilney. But now she's being offered this carriage ride and she is not uninterested in the carriage ride. She seems very happy with the idea of going on the ride and she's not, you know, fighting it or upset by the idea. She thinks it could be pleasant. She's already said she's she likes riding in an open carriage and she doesn't get that the opportunity to do it very much. So I think she's kind of excited about this trip. She's happy enough to go and so she quickly runs up to get her coat so that they can go on their trip and it says just a few short minutes which is important because this whole exchange is very quickly but when she comes down Isabel is waiting there and she immediately says you have been at least three hours in getting ready which is again pointing out that hyperbole that Isabella uses all the time where her her language is just to the extreme and it's a big contrast with Catherine so Catherine is using very frank you know basic language that is very truthful other and isabella uses very over-the-top dramatic flower flowery language that i think we're not supposed to see as as truthful that it you know is covering up some things and so she's talking about wanting to see her and hurrying off and they're in a great hurry to get going and as she turns away, she says to James, what a sweet girl she is. I quite dote on her. And again, it's just that over-the-top language that Isabella uses all the time. Everyone she love, she likes as a friend, she just adores, and she's just over the moon about them. And everyone she dislikes, she hates in extreme. And so her emotions are one to the other, and all her expressions are just over-the-top and flowery. And we see that again with her here. And then we get to the conversation with Mr. Thorpe. And so here's another little example of Catherine not understanding the way some people talk because he starts with saying that, you know, his horse is so, Mr. Thorpe's horse is so wild and rambunctious that not to worry that he might, you know, we might start with a pull, that he's very playful, but he'll soon know his master and whatnot. So he's kind of warning her that it might... His horse might just go off really quick right away. And then that doesn't happen. It starts just like normal. And Catherine took him at his word that things might go poorly. And so is very excited that they didn't and congratulates him. And then he says, oh, you know, it's because I'm such a good coachman. And this is the first time we're starting to see in Catherine's head that she might be starting to understand the duplicity of Mr. Thorpe. Because it says, Catherine, though she could not help wondering that with such perfect command of his horse he should think it necessary to alarm her with its relation of its tricks, congratulated herself sincerely on being under the care of so excellent a coachman. Um, so it's a, just a very minor thing. She's not noticing that he is uh, that he is telling her things that are not true quite yet um but she is starting to notice at least that his that what he's saying doesn't match up so she's noticing that he scared her with this prediction of his horse's behavior but then at when she 
was happy that his prediction did not come true. He's like, oh, yeah, of course it wouldn't. I'm such a good coachman. So she's starting to notice that incongruity, incongruent um, between his between the things he says. He start, she's starting to notice they don't match up. She hasn't quite gotten to the point where she's realizing he lies a lot. Um, but we're starting, she's at least starting to notice that she can't trust everything he says, which I think is a good step for her. And then another thing about how the animal continued to go on in the same quiet manner without showing the smallest propensity towards any unpleasant vivacity and considering its inevitable pace was 10 miles an hour, by no means alarmingly fast, which sarcasm much. I think it was, that's just a funny line. Again, Mr. Thorpe had made this huge deal about his horse always going 10 miles an hour, which is faster than horses carry with carriages usually went on a road. Um, I think the average was more something like seven miles an hour. I'm not, again, an expert, so this is just kind of what I've picked up over time with this sort of thing and from some like annotated versions that I've read. That's the information I've gotten that 10 miles an hour is very fast for a carriage of the time. So the fact that his horse always goes 10 miles an hour, which Mr. Thorpe made a big deal of when they first met, it's just kind of going back on that and laughing at the fact that his horse is not going 10 miles an hour because even though his horse is, because Catherine here is saying, well, even though my horse is going 10 miles an hour, it doesn't seem that fast. So he's not, his horse is going the usual speed. I'm pretty sure. And then we get some more crassness from Mr. Thorpe, where he says, old Allen is as rich as a Jew, which, um, seems a little racist. Uh, I don't remember like a phrase like that coming up in other Jane Austen novels that I've read ever. It doesn't seem like it's a common phrase she uses. And I'm assuming that it's in the mouth of John Thorpe because he is a very crass person who says a lot of other horrible things that we don't like. And it's to kind of show his, again, lack of class to use a phrase, something like rich is a Jew, which doesn't seem like a kind, nice phrase for him to be using, even in the time period. I don't hear other characters talking like this. So, I mean, because we talk about people in the past were, you know, had more racial views and things, racist views, that that we would consider not good. And they had sexist views, too, that we in a modern context wouldn't appreciate. But even for the time period, it seems like this particular phrase is not something that Jane Austen's characters use. So I think it's supposed to be highlighting the crassness of Mr. John Thorpe. In any case, they move on. And I think it's funny that Catherine doesn't get who he's talking about when he says old Alan. And he has to explain the man you're with. Oh, Mr. Alan, you mean? Because it's super rude, again, for him to be calling this man he does not know, really. He's probably been introduced. But he, you know, met a couple days ago, maybe. He's calling him Old Alan. Again, that's something that if you read... The other characters in Jane Austen don't talk like that. There's not... They don't, like, just to call... They don't get so familiar or call him Old Alan right away. Give him a nickname. Um, it's a very rude thing to do. His language is just very coarse. 
and not fitting in with the way the other characters talk. But he's taking this moment to try and insinuate that Catherine will get some of Mr. Allen's money, that she's like his heiress. And again, I think this conversation is going over Catherine's head. She doesn't seem to understand what's going on here. But he's asking, is he very rich? Oh, yes, I think so. Does he have any children? No. He's your godfather, isn't he? No. But you're with him a lot. Well, yeah. So it's just going on with that conversation. And I think it doesn't take that long. And I don't think Catherine really marks it as being important. But to me, that conversation is our like show of Mr. Thorpe is trying to figure out if Catherine is going to get money from Mr. and Mrs. Allen in their will or whatnot. Um, trying to see if they are going to, if she's going to get some money. And that could be an in indication of why he is trying to spend so much time with her. Is because he thinks that she's got money from the Allens. Which I don't think we've gotten any indication that she would at this point. But Mr. Thorpe is jumping to that. And then he talks, and then we switch over to talking about Mr. Allen drinking a bottle a day. And her saying, no, he's not, he's not an alcoholic, basically. And... And then Thorpe going on and on about how it's good to drink alcohol and it would be better if people drank more wine. And how he had a party and everybody drank like five pints of wine or beer or something. I'm used to pints being beer, but then he's talking about wine, so I'm not sure what some sort of alcohol they drink in pints. And everybody drank five pints a head, which is a lot. Um... And so they're kind of going back and forth with Catherine saying, yeah, you guys at Oxford, so at university, are drinking way too much. And Thorpe saying, no, we don't drink. And trying to say, well, we only drank the five pints ahead, which, you know, is not that much. And she says, yeah, it is. It's way too much. And they kind of go back and forth with that. For a little bit, then Thorpe's ideas reverted to all the merits of his own equipage. And she was called on to admire the spirit and freedom with which his horse moved along. So they argue a little bit about the alcohol thing, which again shows Thorpe to not be a very great companion, to maybe show showcase some vices of his if he drinks so much. I think we could see that as a problematic and also just not a topic of conversation that is appropriate to be talking about with a young lady either so it shows his kind of lack of social graces as well with that and then they go back to talking about his horse and his carriage which seems to be his favorite topic of conversation he keeps bringing it back to that over multiple conversations that they've had and he basically comes together saying that he's got the best carriage the best horse and he's the best coachman and all of that is settled and agreed upon which makes him just come off as so arrogant and, yeah, unlikable. But then they go back to part of the conversation that was at the very beginning where he was making fun of the carriage that Mr. Tilney had rented and saying that it's a little tit-tuppy thing. 
and that it's old and falling apart and a rickety business. And here again we see Mr. Thorpe contradict himself immediately. So first he says, it's a very rickety business and I would not be bound to go two miles in it for 50,000 pounds. At which point Catherine is quite frightened and says, oh, we have to turn back and warn them. We can't go if he's going to be in a carriage that's unsafe. And then he's like, unsafe? It's not unsafe. It's fine. I would undertake for five pounds to drive it to York and back again without losing a nail. And that's, you know, within that same conversation, within like a breath or two, he's going from saying that I would not be bound to go two miles in it for 50,000 pounds or I would drive it to York and back without losing a nail for five. Um, which is just, again, shows his hypocrisy and him going back and not meaning anything he says. So he went on and on about how awful the carriage is. And then he's trying. And then when Catherine actually wants to do something with that information and, you know, tell her brother or go back because the carriage is not safe. He's like, oh, come on. No, it's fine. I was just messing with you, basically. <laughs> Although he doesn't admit he was messing with you. He just goes on and says the different the other, the opposite of what he had said before. And then we've got a very funny little sentence about Catherine that gives us some indication of her character, where she says, where it says, Catherine listened with astonishment. She knew not how to reconcile two such very different accounts of the same thing, for she had not been brought up to understand the propensities of a rattle, nor to know how many idle assertions and impudent falsehoods the excessive vanity will lead. And she reflected on the affair and sometimes in much perplexity. So again, we're getting this, this is the second hint here, that Catherine is very confused by Mr. Thorpe. And we're seeing how naive again she is, that she doesn't understand how Mr. Thorpe can say one thing and then say something else completely different the next time. And it talks about her own family didn't do that. They were not in the habit of telling lies to increase their importance or of asserting at one moment what they would contradict the next. And so her family doesn't talk like that. She's been very sheltered. She hasn't met anybody who basically lies as much as Mr. Thorpe does or at all. She's a very naive, sheltered person and so she's very confused by this character of Mr. Thorpe where he just tells blatant lies to her face and doesn't seem at all ashamed or abashed by it so it's interesting to be in Catherine's head during this conversation because I think that we as the reader watching this Jane Austen is making you know kind of how awful he is very clear and Catherine we're seeing very slowly come around to the idea that he might not be a, bit, a good person. But it's happening very slowly because she's not used to having to make that kind of judgment on anyone. But he eventually convinces her that no, James and Isabella are safe. And then they go back to the rest of the conversation, or rather talk which I just such a great way to put it because it makes it put it paints that picture in your head very clearly. They're not having a conversation. Mr. Thorpe is giving a speech, which is kind of how most of these conversations between Mr. Thorpe and Catherine go that he's just talking and she's just listening. 
And so he's basically going off on his speech on a bunch of tall tales about him making a lot of money on sell, buying and selling horses and racing matches and him being such a great hunter and such a good writer and the language of this entire paragraph I could just read again it's so great imagine that Jane Austen's a good writer but just about you know about how good his judgment is and about how good his writing is and he's just over the top tall tales that we as the reader again are supposed to be very easily see as falsehoods and his exaggerations and it's not true because it's just too over the top and then we again get into Catherine's head and little as Catherine was in the habit of judging for herself and unfixed as were her general notions of what men ought to be she could not entirely repress a doubt while she bore with the effusions of his endless conceits of his being altogether completely agreeable it's just such a long-winded way to say she's starting to realize she might not like Mr. Thorpe. <laughs> but it's, you know, so hard for her like, to admit that she might not like him. And it goes on to say it was a bold surmise because he's Isabella's brother. And because he's James's friend and both of them told him. Both James and Isabella, who she trusts implicitly, have told her that Mr. Thorpe is a good person. And so it's very hard for her to think that maybe he's not, or maybe she doesn't like him, even though both of them have said he's a good person and that he's entertaining and amiable. And so it's very hard for her to come up with her own opinion and not just trust her friends. And so we're seeing, I think, some real growth in Catherine in her ability to, even though it's very watered down language able to start to admit to herself that you know what maybe I don't like Mr. Thorpe and so by the time they came back it in small degree ugh, in small degree induced her to resist such high authority and to distrust his powers of giving universal pleasure and so she's starting to realize that maybe he's not perfect and that maybe she doesn't have to like his company. So they get back um, to Mr. and Mrs. Allen's lodgings and it's already three o'clock. And again, we get this hyperbolic language from Isabella where she's saying it's inconceivable, incredible, impossible that it could be three o'clock. And she won't believe it, even though she looks at her watch and the servant's watch and her brother's watch. And she doesn't believe it until James Moreland brings out his watch. And then it would have been inconceivable, incredible, and impossible to, to not believe James. Which is, I think, supposed to, again, highlight the fact that she's interested in James. Um, and that's why she'll listen to him and nobody else. Because she's trying to, sh you know, flirt with him. And one way to do that is to depend on what he says and whatnot. But she's got these over-the-top things to say and she just seems to be talking very loudly and oh there and then there's this nice thing where she says she and she could only protest over and over again that no two hours and a half had ever gone off so swiftly before and Catherine was called on to confirm Catherine could not tell a falsehood even to please Isabella 
but the latter was spared the misery of her friend's dissenting voice by not waiting for her answer. So the image in my head is Isabella is basically ranting and raving and overpowering the entire conversation with her big flowery language about how she cannot conceive that it could be three o'clock, three o'clock already. It's impossible for it to be so late in the day. And these two hours must have flown by so quickly. They've never flown by so quickly before. We had such a great time, didn't we, Catherine? And then she just keeps talking. She doesn't allow Catherine to say anything. Um, and Catherine is okay with that because she wouldn't have been able to give a pleasing lie for Isabella's sake. And she wouldn't want to distress her by telling the truth, which is that no, she really didn't particularly enjoy her drive because Mr. Thorpe is not good company which she has very slowly come to that realization of. Um, and then we get more into Isabella's character saying that her own feelings entirely engrossed her. Her wretchedness was acute. And she had so much to say to Catherine, but there's no time to say it. And so off she goes. And with smiles of most exquisite misery and the laughing eye of utter despondency, Again, it's just that hypocrisy because she's saying that she's so upset and so we've got a smile of misery and a laughing eye of utter despondency. It's just oh, so good and so good at pointing out that Isabella, like her brother, doesn't seem to always say what she means and is not as trustworthy a character as we could hope but i think that catherine doesn't necessarily see that yet not in isabella anyway she she is starting to see it in her in her brother john thorpe but is not seeing it in isabella that's my reading of it anyway so then she goes in to see mrs allen and mrs allen again gets roasted poor mrs allen she is not having a good chapter <laughs> i mean she is having a good chapter in that she is very funny but she's not having a good chapter in that she's not coming off all that well. So she comes in and the first sentence, well, my dear, here you are a truth, which she had no great inclination, no greater inclination than power to dispute. <laughs> so uh, Mrs. Allen, just be, it's just that a truth, which Catherine had no greater inclination than power to dispute. Like, what do you say? Yes, I am. It's just funny. All right, so they start talking about the airing, saying that she had a good time. And then Mrs. Allen says she went to the pump room, and then she saw Mrs. Hughes and Mr. and Miss Tilney, and they spoke a while, and she learned a bunch about the Tilneys from Mrs. Hughes. She told her all sorts of things, but she can't really remember any of it. It's a very, um, and this is where I'm saying that Mrs. Allen is having a tough chapter because she comes off as such an airhead here. She's because she, Catherine asks her, and what did she tell you of them? Oh, a vast deal. She hardly talked of anything else. And did she tell you what part of Gloucestershire they came from? Oh, she did, but I can't remember. Okay. Um. And then she goes on with about how the their mother was a friend of Mrs. Hughes. And she had a lot of money. And then, well, is she in Bath? Or Mr. and Mrs. Tilney in Bath? And I fancy they are. I'm not quite certain. But a home recollection, I think they might be dead. They might be dead. Or at least the mother's dead. It's just... 
she just is going on and on. She's got a lot, again, it's that thing where she doesn't have a lot to say, but she won't stop talking. So she's got these long paragraphs of text of her just talking and talking, but she's not actually giving us any information. And so Catherine tries again of, well, is Mr. Tilney the only son? I can't quite be positive, my dear. I think he is, but, you know, maybe. And so Catherine inquired no further. She had heard enough to feel that Mrs. Allen had no real intelligence to give. And it's very funny that Mrs. Allen apparently got all this information about the Tilneys and has forgotten it all within, like, moments. She just doesn't retain anything except for the fact that they're rich and she thinks that Mrs. Tilney's dead because she remembers something about a, about pearls. So what she does remember seems to have to do with clothes because she remembers that Mrs. Um, Mrs. Tilney was rich because she had 500 to buy wedding clothes and Mrs. Hughes saw them all and she remembers that she's dead because, because I remember there was a pearl necklace that was given to the daughter because when she died. So she only is, it's again pointing in that fact that Mrs. Four, or Mrs. Four, Mrs. Allen really is only interested in clothes and accessories and things. And so that's the only thing that she has retained from this conversation. And again, poor Catherine is very upset because she would like to know all this information and she doesn't have a good person to tell her and she missed the conversation and she can now only lament her ill luck and now it was clear that the drive had by no means been very pleasant and that John Thorpe himself was quite disagreeable. So because she missed her chance to speak with the Tilneys, she's even more upset about her drive, which was not particularly pleasant. And we saw her kind of slowly coming to the realization that John Thorpe might not be particularly pleasant and that the drive might not have been that great. And she was slowly coming to the realization of that in her own mind. And I like how Jane Austen kind of lets us into Catherine's head slowly as we go through this chapter to go from when she first says, yes, she'll go on, on the ride. She's very excited. She's happy. She thinks she's going to have a great time. And then to slowly over the course of it, realize that, oh, I don't like John Thorpe. And, oh, he's not a great guy the way that I thought he was because even though Isabella and my brother James told me he was. I am coming to the realization that I have my own opinion and it is that I do not like John Thorpe. And it's nice to see Catherine have her own opinion and be able to come to it. And it's kind of, I really like how it's worked in in this chapter that this whole chapter, we basically are seeing Catherine's opinion slowly change about John Thorpe to realize that she doesn't like him and she didn't have a good time with him. And that, I think, is new for Catherine to actually be able to come to, to, a, to an opinion like that. Be able to come to a place where she's like, this is not a pleasant person. I don't want to spend time with him. And I'm not going to just blindly believe the praises of him by these other people. And so I'm proud of Catherine here. She is growing up a little bit and starting to make her own opinions of the world, which is a good thing, in my opinion. And that is the end of chapter nine. It's all about that walk that they went, or walk, that carriage ride they went on, and realizing that she doesn't like Mr. Thorpe. So next time we will be back with chapter 10.
And we're getting very close to the end of volume the first. Or volume one. I still volume the first from another podcast. <laughs> so sorry. Um, but we are going to be for chapter 10 next time. And there are 15 chapters in volume one. So we're getting close to the end of volume one, which is all about the time in Bath. And then we will be moving on. So it's very exciting. We're getting into more character development, more things sort of happening in the book. If you have any comments you want to make about Northanger Abbey or about my opinion of it, what I've said, what you agree with, what you don't agree with, any discussions you'd like to have about Jane Austen, feel free to email me. My email is imolcorner at gmail.com. That's in my own little corner. imolcorner at gmail.com. And I will see you guys next time. Mm-hmm.